Okay, so again, the most important thing to think about is that in rhetorical analysis, the purpose is going to be to tell me how does the author achieve their purpose for that audience. The how is the analysis. The how is the essay, right? And within that essay, you have to establish what their purpose is, who the author is, who the audience is. That's what the space cat is for, right? And then you go in and you analyze how they did those things, how they reached their purpose, okay? So today, the point of today is to show you the thought process that you would go through much faster, actually in the time setting, right? But we'll take you through every single little piece of this process so you get a feel in your bones for what it is to identify the exigence, what it is to identify the difference between the exigence and the context. You see what I'm saying? If you'll take out that purple sheet that um, has the acronym of Space Cat on it, especially for those of you who didn't do well on the last quiz, meaning you're not quite sure what the Space Cat stuff stands for yet. For those of you who didn't do well, this is a time for you to solidify in your brains what these things are and why they matter in terms of helping you analyze a text, right? So remember, Space Cat is what we're literally doing, but with this Jigo packet. You might also need, I forgot to include this page, the Empathy, Mercy, and Humanization. I forgot to include that page in the, the annotation packet that you have. So if you don't have it, can you grab it? And if you do have it, you can staple it if you want to. But so ideally, you're filling out your packet, your annotation packet as we go. And you can use this packet, and this will be the last time that we do it like this. You can use this packet as you write your essay. You can have it there. I just want you to get a feel in your bones of what it's like to fully analyze a text rhetorically, right? But this is going to be the last time. After this point, I'm going to expect you to feel comfortable enough to take a look at an unseen text and find the space cat of it in five minutes. Right? So this is the last chance that I'm going to hold your hand through it. The rest of this term is simply going to be giving you a chance to practice it in a pressurized setting, basically. Questions about this rationale? No questions? Okay. Okay. So this is a chance to really get it into your bones is what I'm trying to say. Okay. So we have, oops. Okay. So this is Zara. Go ahead. PhD. He's a Christian speaker and spokesperson for the civil rights movement. And then an um, important part to his letter is that he was arrested for protesting in Birmingham. So, and it's also really important to state that he's not just a preacher. Like anyone can be like a Sunday school teacher or a preacher. He's a literal theologian. Like he has a degree in theology. So yeah, he's a preacher, but he's not just some dude on a televangelist channel saying stuff that he read in the Bible. He literally is an educated theologian. Why is it important that we know about this author, these things about this author? In terms of rhetoric, why is it important that we know those things about this author? Why did they put it in the blurb at the top of this, the letter is what I'm saying. Yeah. Can I kind of understand like the background and the purpose? Right, the background and the purpose, but also in terms of 
uh, Aristotelian appeals. Yeah, I was going to say it just builds credibility, like a logical sort of appeal towards who's talking and yeah, it just makes it more credible. Yes. So the ethos of this man matters because he's saying agitating things. He's saying things that could make people upset. How different would this speech be if the words were literally the same except for some dude wrote it who read the Bible one time and wanted to start like, a, you know, a Christian cult? How different would this text look? The identity of the author is as important to the text as anything else. Because everything he has to say in this letter has so much more weight because of his ethos, because of his credibility, because he's educated, because he's experienced, because of his leadership positions, because of who he is. Right? It's, it's a whole different thing. Okay. And then the subject is justice, more specifically racial injustice. And I include the quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So specifically the subject, racial injustice, yes, right? But, and we're going to talk about this. The subject can't be separated from the context of the situation, which we'll get to, right? Your job was just to talk about the subject. But it, racial injustice, if you're writing that in your paper and you don't mention in the context of this heated civil rights movement, right? Then it has no meaning. So all of this Space Cat stuff, if you look at the graphic organizer thing down here on that purple page, it's so interwoven that it's hard to separate the definitions of these things because they matter to each other as part of their definition. It's strange, right? Okay. Okay, so we're talking about context versus exigence and the audience. So in terms of context, what, can somebody tell me the difference between context and exigence? Yes. So context is what's happening in the text, what the author is speaking about, and the exegence is like the inspiration for that text creation. Okay, so it's the subject or the topic is what the author is speaking about, right? But the context is the atmosphere, the moment the text was created. So if we talked about racial injustice today, the context would be Black Lives Matter movement, police shooting black men, way disproportionately to the numbers of, of Caucasian people, right? That's the context of now. So the topic is defined differently because of the context. The context is defined by what's happening in the world at the time. It's like the zeitgeist, like he even uses the word zeitgeist in his written um, the written version of the letter. So the context is what is happening. So the context for this is the civil rights movement. The context is that he's been arrested for protesting in Birmingham. The context is that well-meaning Christian, in air quotes, people are pushing back against treating people of color equally. This is the atmosphere, the attitudes of the time. What's going on in the community at the time? That's context. And then you're very right. Exigence is the immediate spark. What's the immediate spark? Without reading this, what's the immediate spark? Can you tell me for this letter? Because I feel like it's much easier than other texts. What's the immediate spark for this letter? Yeah. Um, him being in, well, arrested. And, and so that's more of the context is not as immediate. 
What's the extra immediate thing? Yes. Yeah, so the clergyman got together and wrote like a joint letter to him telling him that he was irresponsible. So the exigence is responding to their letter. It's the immediate spark. And he even says at the beginning, like, usually I don't respond to these, but when I got this, I was like, oh, hold me back, right? So the exigence is the immediate thing, but it's part of the context. So you're right, like him being in jail this letter wouldn't exist without him being in jail. It's, it's formatted because he's sitting, he says, I'm sitting here. What else do I have to do but think big thoughts, right? So it's really important that you understand the difference between context and exigence. Can you write it down and make sure you understand the difference? Yes? So tell me, I love this particular piece because the audience is so much clearer than some of the stuff that you'll see out there. The audience is so incredibly clear. He literally writes it as a letter and in the salutation, he writes, dear fellow, I think it's some sort of ecclesiastical leaders or what, clergymen, that's what he says, right? Dear fellow clergymen. And what's interesting about this audience is I originally, the first time I read it, thought that it was just Christian clergymen. It's not. He specifically, in the middle of the letter, refers to some Jewish religious leaders as well. That's important. Because, if you notice, most of the biblical references he makes are from the Old Testament, which is the Torah of the Jewish religion, right? So he's so smart. If he took stuff from the New Testament, which he might have, he did speak about Jesus and speak about him as a Savior, right? But most of the biblical references come from the Old Testament, and Jewish people don't believe in the New Testament. Do you see what I'm saying? They, I mean, they believe it exists, but they don't adhere to it religiously, right? Let's see, American people, yes. But I love that she has pointed out that there's an immediate audience, which is those clergymen, but who else is the audience for what he's saying? Why would he write the letter and then record it, revise it and record it? Why would he do that? There's something about the audience. Why would he do that? He wants Not more than just those five clergymen to see it, right? So his immediate audience is those five clergymen, but his audience is much bigger. He wants his ideas to reach a bigger audience. So then, can somebody define for me what you think is his bigger audience? What specific group of people is his bigger audience? Yeah. So, like, against their protesting? For so, specifically, and he mentions that audience in the letter. What does he call them? White moderates, right? He spends, in the middle of it, he spends the whole time saying, I understand the KKK. It's easy for me to understand pure hate. What's hard for me to understand is the white moderate, where they're just on the fence. They just don't try either way like they're allowing this injustice to happen passively he's saying it's the inaction of the white moderate that disappoints him and breaks his heart way more than just pure hate so his audience is the white moderate his secondary audience expanded audience the white moderate stand up for what's right is what he's asking them okay 
So do we under do we feel like we're feeling strong about the audience, the media audience versus the bigger audience and the context and the exigence? Yes? Okay. So next we have genre, purpose, and call to action. They're gonna ask you to define the genre, which is difficult. Like some of you in your HL essays, you're writing about Ibsen and you're calling it a novel. It's a problem. Don't do it, right? We have to have to, the type of work, the, the way that it's formatted is a specific choice by the author. What if Martin Luther King had not made this a letter, right? What if he hadn't made it a letter? What if he tried to publish it as a book that he sold? Would it change the message at all? Think about it, though. What's the purpose of someone publishing a book versus someone issuing a public statement? Perfect. So if he had published a book and asked people to buy it, do you think his message would have been as compelling? If he asked people to pay for the privilege of reading his words, do you think it would have meant as much? So he made a choice to make it a public statement. It's free for everyone. Do you understand why the genre of it makes a difference? Why, with his message, the type of text is a huge authorial choice? Huge. What if he decided to write this as a narrative, imaginary story and make it a novel? Do you think it would be as impactful immediately? How long does it take people to read a novel? Right? And if he, t if he put it into a narrative sense, they might not feel that it's as real. He made sure that people knew that he was sitting in jail writing this. A PhD is <laughs> sitting in jail. And he's writing this beautiful stuff because he's been imprisoned for standing up for what's right. This is arguably the only medium that would have been appropriate for his message. Right? So then, I think it's really important that without looking at this, you can tell me the purpose of this with no help. Because again... The purpose is at the heart of the rhetorical analysis. If you can't figure out the purpose, you can't figure out anything else about the rhetorical analysis. So the purpose here, and Katie's right, she also <laughs> checked it with me before, she, <laughs> before today, just to make sure. She's right, the, king's, pur the king's, pur king's purpose is uniform through all his speeches. He wants social change, and it's related to his audience. He doesn't need his black community to change. They already know the problem, right? He needs white moderates to change. He needs church lead religious leaders to change and political leaders to change, right? But the, the purpose is always in relation to the audience. If he were speaking to an all-black audience, his message would be completely different, right? In this speech, he specifically focuses on the change needed in the hearts of the good-willed, good, well-meaning people. He is saying, I know that you all are good people, which is why I need you to think about things from my perspective and be actually really good, right? So this is a great purpose. He wants social change. He specifically wants these religious leaders specifically to change their stance on his protests. And then he says specifically, you shouldn't just be telling your congregations, and I think this is important, maybe include this in purpose, in the purpose. He says, you should not be 
telling your congregations to follow the anti-segregation laws because it's the law. That's not enough. He says, yes, you should be telling your congregations to follow the law, but the reason to follow the law matters. He says what they have been telling their congregations is to follow the law because it's the law. And King says, no, no. The reason you tell your people to follow the law is because they are Christians and they believe that everyone is their brother or sister. And they follow the law, not because it's the law, but because the law is moral and right. And we believe in brotherhood in Christianity is what he's saying. So he's, he's asking them to not only enforce the law and support him, but support him for the right reasons. Right? Oh, I'm very heated about this because I watched the stuff last night with the Trump impeachment trial and people trying to justify the exact same stuff that we've seen in the 60s. It's just the same happening over and over and over again. Okay. So the call to action is a little bit separate than the purpose, right? So the purpose is to change their stance, to help, him under, help them understand him, right? But he also wants them to do something. So you can think about the purpose. I want them to think something. I want them to understand something. And then the call to action is, based on that understanding, what do I want them to actually do, right? So she says, King calls for good-willed individuals, meaning white moderates, middle-class African-Americans, clergymen, and anyone with a lukewarm acceptance. Such a great poll that Katie had, right? Anyone with a lukewarm acceptance to stop being so freaking lukewarm about it, right? And be devoted to justice rather than just, let's not have any tension, anybody. Be open to tension because it creates justice the hard way because they've tried the easy way. Right? Okay. We're feeling comfortable with these concepts. Yes? I want to really feel that you get it here. Okay. <coughs> so if you look at the space cat, we've completed the space part of space cat. Does that make sense? The space part is just, tell me the rhetorical situation is the term for that. The rhetorical situation is right there. Now we're going to go into, now that we know the rhetorical situation, Tell me how he achieves his purpose. Tell me how artistically, like those little artistic choices, as a writer, he gets what he wants. And so if you look at the cat in Space Cat, you have your choices, which means the literary devices, rhetorical devices, right? Then you have the A, which is the appeals. How in the Aristotelian appeals way, is he getting what he wants? He's using ethos, pathos, logos, and sometimes a combination of all three in one sentence. Right? And then tone. And tone is hard to define. We're going to get there. But if he had done this, written this letter in a joking tone, would it have had the same resonance? <laughs> if he had written this letter in an openly angry tone, would it have had the same resonance? No, he took, he took a road between the middle and he, he talked about the, dis the, the disappointment that comes out of love. Very, very interesting, right? Okay, so arguments and organization, you wanna do this? Yeah, um, so I actually have three slides, I but saw, yeah. if it wants to be like, if you guys don't wanna write all that, because I totally get that. The third slide is kind of more condensed, but 
Um, I want to talk about the two main arguments that I found, which was like the time, which was like even in the first paragraph it says um, unwise and untimely. That's what his movement was called. So that's one of the arguments that he makes, and that's a big one he talks about. And then the means is like, <clears throat> why are you doing this? Why the direct action? Why the sit-ins? Why the marches? Because um, that was the problem with a lot of the white moderates was, well, we don't like how you're doing this. Like, we agree, but we just don't agree how you're doing it. So, so. the best way to, to organize these arguments is why now and why how, yeah. basically, right? Here's what you asked why now and why how. Here are my answers to why now, and here are my answers to why am I doing it this way, right? I love that. Okay. <clears throat> so the first thing was I noticed the tone at the beginning was more polite, it was patient, res like respectful, because he says words like, um, but since I feel that you're men of genuine goodwill and criticisms are sincerely set forth, um, da, 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 I, will, I want to answer this in patient and reasonable terms. So uh, and again, that's another important thing. If he started the whole letter and his speech, if he, if he started angry, it honestly wouldn't have that same effect. You can see that he's trying to appeal to them. He's trying to- He's assuming the best, yeah. which is- <clears throat> Very noble. <laughs> I yeah. don't know if I would assume the best, right? Um, and then, so he, in order, because it's talking about organization, he first addresses like why he's he's doing it. Like I cannot sit idly by, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and so he he states his place in the civil rights movement, and then um, talks about more on page two. He starts to appeal to emotional appeals when he says in paragraph 12, um, especially when he says, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? And wow, like when you read that and when you hear that, that is just such a strong and honestly sad thing to hear and listen to. Um, so obviously that's like even now, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's I know, so right? sad. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so then it goes on. <laughs> Sorry, it's okay. like, <laughs> I know, <do> you? <laughs> No, like this is a hard thing to read, I you know. know. <laughs> I know. Um, Cuz you read it and you can Wow, you can really see the pathos he uses in here. <laughs> I know, right? I'm so glad that you have a reaction to it. Um, that was his purpose. Yeah. So he's achieved it. Yeah, and <laughs> I love how on page 3 it changes from more that like that really hard emotional impact it goes straight to more like ethical and logical, which he talks about in like, he talks about laws and unjust laws and how he feels that morality should be above these laws because he makes these allusions to like Hungary and Nazi Germany and all these Bible references where all these times and points, these little evidence, evidence that he's saying that, um, like if there, if argues that laws are broken when they're already corrupt to begin with. And um, that just shows that like time and time again, laws have not proven to always be just and that changes come because of these unjust laws and someone needs to do something about it. So um, at the bottom of page three, the tone starts to become more bold, more direct, um, almost impatient in a way because he's saying, look, I'm disappointed about this, I'm disappointed about this, this is I not okay. I love the disappointment parts because choosing the word disappointment is spe like you're saying, yeah, it almost it's about the tone. Like he's not angry about it. He's disappointed because he expected the best of them and they didn't deliver. Yeah, it almost reminds me of like my parents. Like, it feels like you're in trouble. Like, you read it and you're like, they yeah, should be in like, trouble. You let him down. It's they like should the be worst epically, feeling. epically grounded at the very least. Yeah, and then so 
he has his first disappointment he talks about is really like the white moderates. Um, because they're they're arguing about being like the time, like why now and um, how are you doing this? And um, he brings up the point of he's not trying he like he has to answer their concerns. And the frustrating thing is he's like, Well obviously like can you can you guys see that through our direct we're all peaceful. Like mm-hmm. it says, um, he he sides with there's a more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. I'm grateful to God that through the Negro Church, the dimension of nonviolence entered our struggle. So he's saying that this was a good thing, like because he wants change. He wants that social change. He wants that uniformity. So um, well, and he also is this the section two where he's like, here's the thing, <laughs> it very easily could have been violent. Yeah, like he and I've tried not to make it violent, so y'all should be grateful. Is basically what he said. And he's like, this isn't a threat. I'm literally telling you what would happen and what will happen if you don't respond to our peaceful protest. Yeah. Um, That's intense. And then another part of his organization and arguments is he makes that, like, um, time is just something man has made up. Like, it really, you can't rely on time. You can't rely on a time frame to do something. And, like, the time to act is now. Mm-hmm. And well, yesterday, really, but yeah, still, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and that's and that's when he starts bringing up, like, look, we have held on for so long, and it's kind of ridiculous and unfair for you guys to keep saying, well, wait, wait now, wait now. It's like, can't you see why we can't do that anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, so then he, there's like the shift to extremism where it's almost like, I love it. I love this He's part like, because go ahead and call me an extremist because look at all these other extremists. Yeah, and it, and. It made me think of, like, because he has to deal with, like, this, it's, like, a bad connotation. Like, no one wants to be, like, an extremist because then you're, like, you know, people think more of just aggression. That's at least what I think of. Mm-hmm. That's why I think when I hear extremism, I just hear, like, outright aggression and, like, whew, That's the connotation yeah. that you associate with that word. Yeah. Um, so he then kind of wraps it around to, like, well, at first I didn't like it, but now... Now that I understand, yeah, I would be because most means and most times in history where things have come to pass, I'm like, the most change in the past has been because of some form of extremism. So he asked the questions like, what kind of extremists will we be then? And that's when he says like, through love, nonviolent means. Um, And then after that, he shifts to disappointment with uh, white church leaders, leadership, white moderates, you know. and again, with like that disappointment, it's like a tone of almost disbelief as he's like, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern. I would hope that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. And again, just a really strong <gasps> statement. Like, yeah. His, he said like, maybe I hoped too much. Maybe I saw too much and maybe I believed too much in you guys. And, um, so but I don't think he would apologize for assuming the best of them until he was proven wrong. Like, I think he is the kind of person who wanted to walk into something assuming the best. He walked into this letter saying, I'm going to assume that you were genuine. I'm going to assume that you're open-minded to what I have to say. And that's why I'm going to be patient and I'm going to explain myself. I just think that's a beautiful thing because he, more than anyone, <laughs> has the right to not assume the best. Which I think is a really interesting rhetorical, artistic choice for him, right? 
And then I thought it was a really powerful thing when he said that like the church wasn't, isn't as strong as it once was because they're not taking action, because they have this weak and effectual voice with an uncertain ground, because they are following the laws. And <coughs> he makes all these Bible references like back then people would literally go in lion den, like the, like the lion's den, to, to stand, stand up by for, their beliefs yeah. and mm -hmm. stand by what is right and mm -hmm. by their morals. And like now what is the church doing? They're not taking action. They're actually going against something that's promoting love, like acceptance, kindness. And again, that's the same tone of like disbelief. It's disappointment. And then <clears throat> he ends with addressing the nonviolent means um, and his hope. Because then he starts using like the word hero. And he's like, well, this image of heroes. And the heroes are just the future people. The future community is where people are starting to pull together. It's white people, it's black people, it's young, old, educated, uneducated. Um, and But so it did dip into like, I'm super disappointed, y'all. Like when your parents like want to have a sit down talk with you, that's like what it was. But he ends, like she's saying, the arguments become hopeful. This is what it can be. This is what I do hope, right? These are images of Americans and people in history who have been hopeful and have had gotten the results that they've been looking for. And then um, just one of the closing uh, quotes that kind of sums it up is just like, one day the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat, sat down at lunch counters, they were re in reality standing up for the best in the American dream and the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage. And again, that just ties back to heroes and how the people back then are now seen as heroes. But the sucky thing is, in that moment, they weren't. They were extremists in the bad way. Yeah. So the one thing I like, too, the, I feel like the last argument is easily overlooked because everything else is so bold. But if you look at the very last line, he says something that really kills me, right? He says, if, do you guys know the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream when Puck is like, if I've offended you, just pretend this was all a dream. Do you remember that part? It's very much that, except for, listen to how deeply he digs, and it's very quiet, and it's very subtle. He says, if I've made an understatement about the inaction of leaders, I beg you to forgive me. He's basically saying, I hope you forgive me if I've understated your efforts. But then he says, and he basically appeals to the idea that he's got a higher power to reckon with. And then he says, but if I've overstated the truth, if I've overstated the truth, he says, I beg God to forgive me. So basically he's saying, I'm answering to this God power, my higher power, and I have to state it clearly because I have him to reckon with. So I'd rather err on the side of not offending God than offending you, is basically what he's saying. And in, he's implying, remember we infer from what the author implies, He's implying that if they don't do everything he's asked them to do, if they do not meet his call to action, God will judge them as well. And his judgment and disappointment is nothing compared to judgment by a higher power. Do you see how subtle it is and how quiet it is? But the, it's, the, it's for sure the best closing line because at the end of the day, he's implying, y'all, God's going to judge you for this, which is way more powerful than Martin Luther King judging you for it. Well, at least at the time. <laughs> Maybe now it would be just as heavy, but at the time, they didn't think much of him, right? So I think that that's a beautiful, thank you, a gorgeous outline of the arguments, but I think this quick one too, if you wanted to make three body paragraphs 
and kind of outline these arguments and how he reaches these overall arching arguments, that's a great way to look at structuring a rhetorical analysis piece. But what she's done really nicely is she said, here are the umbrella arguments, here are the umbrella sections, and then within those sections, he makes rhetorical choices that support that umbrella. So if you think about each of these big arguments as umbrellas, right? We have umbrella one, umbrella two, right? And umbrella three, I don't even know what these look like. More like eggshells, like broken eggshells, whatever. But I'm saying, and each of the little things she mentioned, like I'm disappointed, God's gonna judge you, are those spokes that hold the umbrella outward, right? And in this middle one, it's, you know, why, why are laws unjust? Why are we doing it now, right? And the first one is validating your audience. Y'all are good people. I'm gonna be a good person back to you, even though you super don't deserve it. So do you see how there's the overarching arguments, the topic sentences in essence, and then the support of those big overarching arguments? Yeah? It's the exact same way that you would structure analysis, because basically this letter is an example of a beautifully written rhetorical analysis essay. It's gorgeous, right? He, he basically outlines how these, and deconstructs their arguments piece by piece. I mean, if he were taking the AP Lane test, pretty sure he'd get a really great score, is all I'm saying. Okay, Who, whose is this? I can't see. Whose is this? Does anyone know? Anyone? I think it could be Rachel's, because I, if I remember correctly, but I'm just gonna guess, okay? So here's the thing. We have to define the difference between attitude, style, voice, and tone. And I feel like that's a really difficult thing to do. Attitude, style, voice, and tone. Does anyone wanna give me a diff a, an idea of the difference between an attitude and a style? It's hard. Attitude versus style. Like attitude is like how the author like feels towards the Thing or the, the topic. Yeah, the topic, the subject they're writing about. Uh -huh. And the style is how they express that in their writing. Beautiful. So an attitude could be totally different than a style. So Martin Luther King's attitude, he's disappointed. He's frustrated. He's hopeful. Those are all of his attitudes, right? And his style is formal, respectful, He's showing a lot of respect to, in my opinion, people who super de duper don't deserve it, but that's an artistic choice in terms of rhetoric, right? His style is formal, dignified, respectful, and very, very, and this is important, academic. So I want you to tell me, why does his style matter in terms of his ethos? Think about it. If he wrote this, and the best way to answer this is if he wrote this in like a jokey style, like what is it about? Like a, like a stand-up comedy style, right? Would his purpose be achieved as well? But why did he write in this style in terms of establishing his own ethos as an author? Yeah. It kind of shows that he can like stay cool under pressure and stuff. Ooh, and yes. It kind of puts him like above. Well, he's the epitome of the nonviolent movement, even in his writing. But it puts him like above because 
his educational academic style, like Jordan was saying, she was kind of alluding to it. She said, it's almost by the time he gets to the disappointment part, it feels like a parent, like getting you in trouble. He did that with his style. He established that he was somebody in authority. So then when he got to the disappointment part, you feel like you're in trouble. (laughs) Even though it wasn't even you, I feel like I'm in trouble. So it's very, very brilliant. His style contributes to his, e- his ethos, contributes to his purpose. Do you see how all these ideas are interwoven? And you can analyze why that he made the choices he made? Yeah? Okay. So the voice. So voice is a little bit different than s- attitude. But it's similar to style. Like you'll, you'll hear like writing teachers kind of speak about them interchangeably right? But voice, I know without seeing your names on your papers, exactly who was writing that essay. I can switch off, like I tried to do the switch off, Canvas will let you read it anonymously, it doesn't do any good. I know whose essay this is, zero problem. Zero. Right? That's because I know your voice as a writer. It doesn't even help me to not see the names. I know exactly who it is because everyone has a specific voice and it, particip- it like, uh, contributes to your ethos as a writer. Same with Martin Luther King Jr. He has a voice. He has not, I'm not just saying that the sound of your voice, but the essence of who you are as a person comes through in your writing. It's, ev- it's evident in your word choice. It's evident in the arguments that you select. It's evident in any bias that you might have. So does Martin Luther King Does he exhibit bias in this letter? I certainly hope you'd say yes. Yeah? It just happens to be that his bias, bias again in writing is irresponsible unless it's backed up with logos, with logic. And so every biased statement he makes, he backs up with other Aristotelian appeals, right? So it's more responsible academically that way, right? So... Let's see the tone. Oh, so uh, this is really interesting. She's um, highlighting the tone in different areas. The tone goes from informative into disappointment and impatience. I love that, right? But the tone is also the attitude. So all of these ideas, like they have their thoughts about this topic and how they express their thoughts is all, you can kind of sum up the attitude, the style, and the voice in the word tone. That's why tone right here is the final T in space cap. It's the final T saying it's not complete. An analysis of the text isn't complete until you decide what tone are they approaching this with. And what's beautiful about what this person did whose name I don't know yet is they kind of choreographed the shifts in tone. And the shifts in tone give you the shifts in argument as well. And the shifts in tone help you understand the progression, like the intellectual progression of this writer's argument. So we start out, this is so interesting. So she's using these great, great, great adjectives. So the tone starts out as dignified then shifts to informative and then goes from informative to disappointed and impatient even, right? Then The tone for all of page three is mocking the white moderates. I don't know if I love the word mocking because I didn't get that. I would say rebuking is a better word there. 
he's not, it's not mean-spirited, right? Mocking feels mean-spirited, like the connotation of the word mocking feels mean-spirited, but he's questioning, rebuking, almost gently reprimanding the white moderate. Um, let's see, persuasive tone, it's optimistic, and then disappointment until the last paragraph where he also shows some understanding and some, I'm not sure what this word is, unknowingness. Maybe just projecting what he hopes to see in the future, maybe. Um, and then the final page, it's encouraging. I think that's interesting. But can you see the, pro the, the progress of these adjectives match the progress of the arguments? right? But he starts out respectful. If he didn't start out respectful, then when he gets to the rebuking part, no one's going to listen. So if you analyze why he starts out with a cer certain tone, then it, it makes a little more sense as he goes on through his. And so again, I don't know who did shifts. <laughs> That's funny. No? Okay. You did? Wait, who did? Is there anybody in here? We got to put our names on these things, people. So again, I think that the shifts, it's really well done here, right? But also the shifts, this person really outlined the shifts really well too. So the shifts, um, so we're talking about a shift from describing the problem to go, going into action. And then describing the problem leading to action. And the middle does strike a darker tone. Like Jordan was saying, it's like, what do I tell my kids, you guys? It's bad. And then we kind of go into like maybe a, a logic about laws. And then we go into a history lesson about laws and how people have ex uh, previous extremists, air quotes. And then the sense of urgency. I really like that. I like that, that group of words to describe the end of it, yes and then disappointment, it's so true. But then shifts to desperation for action and basically that's where the last line is invoking that higher power. All right, okay. So we've talked about some of the appeals to ethics and credibility. So it's important to understand that there's two types of appeals to ethics and credibility. First we establish the ethos of the author, right? And how do we establish the ethos of the author? We already did it. Zara was the first one to do it. What, we established the ethos of the author by doing what? We say again. Like the little blurb thing. Yeah, like we're establishing why the author's voice in this conversation matters. Why are they an expert? How are they educated? What's their background that gives them the nerve? Why do they deserve to talk about this? So that's the author's ethos. Right? But then in this, you'll see that he established his own ethos. He says, I'm a preacher. I've, I'm a leader of a movement. Like he establishes his own importance not to brag, but to give people a reason to listen to him. But then he does all of these incredible things. He borrows the ethos of other people that his audience gives credibility to. Does that make sense? So we have author credibility and then basically source credibility or support. So he's using, he's borrowing the ethos of other people that the audience knows about. 
He's borrowing their ethos to support his own ethos, his own credibility. So he brings in names, like big names. <laughs> when you're talking about injustice, he brings in the big guns. He brings in biblical people who've gone into lion's dens and been burned like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Why does he bring up those specific biblical references? Why? Why does he not reference, um, I don't know, this, the Bible of Scientology? The, the text, I don't know what they call it, but their text of Scientology. Why does he not bring up other religious texts? Why does he not bring up the Quran? Yeah. Speaking to his audience. So he knows all of the ethos that he's using is appealing directly to the interests of his specific audience. That matters. So not only, and the thing I think is so beautiful, is he borrows political ethos, religious ethos, and academic ethos. Can you tell me the three, peop the, the three main people he draws from? Political, academic, and religious. Who, what's, what's the pick, what's the, oh, and even historical, I think, is a good one, too. So religiously, what's the biggest gun you can pull? That's probably a terrible metaphor. What's the biggest card you can play? How about that? God and Christ. And he brings in the final extremist. He lists all the extremists, but the best extremist is Jesus. So he brings in the ethics of the Savior. And these people... Are, they're all Christian. Well, some of them are Jewish. But the Christian members of this audience, you can't argue with the ethics, the ethos of the Savior, right? But then he does bring in a Jewish rabbi to appeal to his Jewish audience because there, there were some Jewish religious leaders that he was writing to as well. So those are the religious, religious credibility that he brings in. Then we have political credibility, who's the, I mean, when you're talking about racial injustice, who's the biggest card you can play? Lincoln. Knows what he's doing, this guy, right? But then he also brings in Thomas Jefferson, which in retrospect doesn't really hold up <laughs> because of a conversation that we can have later that I don't want to record. Um, but at the time, Thomas Jefferson was big, big card to play, right? So we have our political guns. We bring out our historical cards to play the credibility or maybe the opposite of credibility who's the ultimate historical card to play in any conversation about this about racial injustice you play the hitler card you play it that's the biggest card to play in terms of historical racial injustice right he played the hitler card it's the what not to do card yeah so that's political credibility it's like reverse credibility, let's not be like Hitler, right? And then he does the biblical credibility, right? We talk about references not just to Jesus, but to God, to uh, prophets in the Old Testament, people who stood up for their beliefs. And then he calls on the lines of current religious leaders as well. He, he quotes one rabbi and then one Christian leader. So he's saying, not only is it credibility from our historical religious beliefs, but current religious beliefs as well. This guy's covering all of his bases, right? And then he does academic credibility. Who's the big guns when you talk about academic credibility? 
Who's the biggest card you play? Socrates, right? That's the real, that's the biggest gun you can play in terms of, I mixed metaphors there, but you get it. In terms of people who not only stood up for their beliefs and were murdered for it, <laughs> but also had the biggest and best ideas of his time. So Martin Luther King is saying, not only do I have religious credibility, political credibility, uh, historical credibility, but I also have a history of academic credibility. So he's covering every single ethos base with each of the people that he brings in and borrows their credibility to boost his own. That's a good writer. You could write your whole essay on that. I just outlined all of your paragraphs for you. You know what I'm saying? So then next. All right, Fangbo, you ready? So at paragraph six, it talking about the, how Birmingham is probably the most segregated city in the U.S. and the police brutality and uh, the bombings of the black homes and churches in Birmingham. So he's bringing um, out this because why? Why does it logically matter? Uh, he's bringing points out the facts and the evidence for the reasons behind the protesting and the uh, civil rights movement. So the logical uh, why facts and evidence that led to his choices. Perfect. Yes. Because remember, logos isn't just data. It's hard facts that can't be denied as well, right? Yeah, and then he talks about the, uh, he explains the unjust law and the just law, and uh, he uses common sense and logic to point out that the segregation is unjust because it goes against the human rights. He spends a lot of time logically explaining the difference between laws and why it's ethically okay for him to break some laws and not others. So he's using a combination of the lo obvious logic, he spends three paragraphs on it, the obvious logic, but the logic behind that, the reasoning behind it is also ethos. He, he's, he's saying, because of this reasoning, now I've established my credibility. So it's logos, ethos, and then anybody who cares about laws and who cares about our country, who cares about our democracy, then it becomes a patriotism thing. Now it's also pathos. So you see how he's combining all these ideas to get exactly what he needs. Look at that face. That's a guy who uses logos. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And they, then he talks about Hitler and the Hungary freedom fighters. And that's also a logo because he's uh, using the historical events and historical facts to support the idea of the unjust law and yes. just law. Yes. Yes. Um, I, it's perfect. Yes, exactly. So if you wanted to write, you know, uh, your essay about the ethos, pathos, and logos, these are great. Anytime a writer is appealing to logic, data, she's saying just like logical reasoning for your choices. So he's saying, you don't like the protests. Well, here are the reasons that we did protest. Logically, don't you draw the line from these events to our protest? He's trying to establish his credibility by being logical and reasoned. Beautiful. And then I think one thing in terms of logos that might be missing here is the logos of his disappointment. He doesn't just say I'm disappointed and walk away. He doesn't just use the pathos. Like the disappointment thing is primarily pathos, but then he's very careful about explaining exactly why he's disappointed. 
And then he is carefully explaining, using logic and reason, to explain that his disappointment isn't out of resentment. It's out of love. So it's a combination of pathos and logos. All right, Lauren's not here. Appeals to emotion. I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, when you start talking about your kids, anyone who has kids can relate. When you start talking about your connection to a higher power, anyone can relate. So really pathos is just how can I get these people to relate to me on more than a logical level? How can I get them to emotionally relate to what I'm saying? So I would argue that you could literally argue every single line in this is pathos. But it's never ever pathos for the sake of emotional manipulation. It's pathos for the sake of helping them come along with him through the logos and the credibility appeals. Does that make sense? So specifically, this amusement park, daughter's tears, explaining to your son why black people are so painting the picture of his family sleeping in their car because they couldn't get into a hotel. And so one really important thing about pathos is, and again, that's what gets you in your heart. We've seen it. But it's another thing on your literary devices list that matters. You can talk about data and logic the whole time, but unless you apply that data and logic to a relatable, real-life example then it doesn't matter. So there's a word, it starts with uh, an A, where most of his appeals go, uh, come from, most of his emotional appeals. What's the word that I'm looking for? It's not something that saves you from a venomous snake bite. It's an anecdote, right? So there's a whole paragraph where he does like seven anecdotes that are just one sentence, right? where he's like, people looking at these signs, being called boy, even though you're a grown man. Your first name is the N-word, right? So he's talking about little teensy anecdotes that appeal to emotion. So anytime an anecdote is coming in, it's to support logos that's coming up or has been presented. And it's to help people relate to his stories through real life examples, real life examples. So that's, that's a really good idea here. So this idea, you can notice that this pathos is giving these people brutal visuals, visuals that they can paint in their mind that they can relate to, that connects them emotionally to what he's saying. Yeah? So put the word anecdote in there is what I'm trying to say. It's not an antidote. Um... And then another really important appeal to emotion that I think is important specifically, specifically in America is when you're talking to white conservatives, one of the best ways to appeal to them emotionally is to appeal to their dedication, their patriotism to their country. So when you talk about democracy, and is it a democracy if everybody that's voted in is not representative of the base of the state? <laughs> So he's almost appealing to their patriotism, their dedication to their country. Not just their dedication to their God, not just their dedication to their community, but their dedication to their country patriotically.
And I think that's really interesting. She's saying some of the anecdotes that they use are, oh. Okay, some of their anecdotes that they use paint really negative pictures, right? But then this person is saying that the eloquence, reminding the audience of the wonderful possibilities of the future of America, that's pathos too, right? Okay, so we have systemic power, oppression, and dehumanization. I'm going to end this recording and we'll move to part two because I'm getting close to the, to the maximum here. Okay, so this is part two of the Birmingham discussion. We're talking about systemic power, oppression, and dehumanization. So if you want to talk about how he's using ethos, pathos, and logos to highlight systemic power, oppression, and dehumanization, you can do that, right? Okay, go ahead. So a lot of the things, especially with oppression and dehumanization that I talked about related a lot to pathos. Um, a lot of the things that um, Lauren mentioned on her side um, were the same things that I kind of picked for those two. And like this one, like we know that there was like, like there were terrible, terrible things that happened. But when he talks about it, it's just like, yeah, it's just, it's, and he, like, there's many times where he, he outlines these things in his letter. And it just is, it just is so sad to read. And um, with systemic power, um, the big one was like the white moderate. Um, it talked about, he talked about how, um, I think we already discussed it, but like the uh, really violent and like hate-filled like groups that were against um, African Americans weren't the problem. It was the white moderate who's more devoted to order than to justice. And that's that systemic power, and those were the people who were continuing the oppression, essentially. Yeah, right? and he was talking to the church, which is. Uh, which to church leaders, which is who's also involved in that, um, and then for oppression, um, there were so many experiences that he talked about. He um, uh, like he would yeah retell all these examples of tragedy, um, and one of the ones that uh, I well the quote that I put up there was when he specifically mentioned oppression, um, and how it's. Uh, like that um, let's see oh that like it must be demanded by the oppressed like uh, and they knew it through like painful experience that it must be demanded mm -hmm. um, that the people who are doing the oppressing aren't going to be like you know what I'm going to stop oppressing you today yeah like, that's never going to happen is what he said yeah so so like they have to do something mm -hmm. to change it um and the oppressed have to cause that tension yeah. in order to get the oppressors to stop oppressing. Yes. Yeah. And that was a big thing with the oppression was he just mentioned that relationship and how they can use that to change. Um, and then for dehumanization, just uh, there was a, the main section that I uh, put there was just when he talks about how the human personality uh anything that degrades it is not just and not morally just yeah. and not legally just yeah both right um and he relates it to segregation and how everything about segregation like distorts the soul damages the personality um and then he talks about the relationship is like it's a terrible relationship between the like he said the oppressors and the oppressed mm -hmm. um 
So those two kind of go hand in hand, oppression and dehumanization. Um, but yeah, just in summary, uh, he mentions these three topics a lot throughout his letter. Um, and he does it like through all the um, appeals, emotional, all of them. Um, and through like his dis how he displayed the oppression, the situations and where they've experienced oppression and dehumanization. Um, he like segregation is a really big topic that he brings up um, to these all three subjects um, uh, for all of the problems that's a big thing that he uses to uh, for his examples so thank you yeah so he's using anecdotes of these things to help people understand what he's illustrating beautiful yes good job um, sorry I cannot see do we know who's this is who is it oh okay so she's not here but hopefully we can talk about Martin Luther King trying to establish empathy with his audience. He's trying to say, we're not against you. If you were to really understand us, understand what we were going through, to have empathy for our situation, the Christian thing or the godly thing would be, bless you, would be to use that empathy to change your stance, right? Um, mercy, I think it's really interesting how he shows mercy to his oppressors. He shows mercy by validating them, saying, I'm going to assume the best of you, even though you did not assume the best of me. Right? That's a beautiful idea. But also he's asking for mercy from his audience as well. And then we have humanization. He's talking about, here are the things that I've seen that dehumanize people. And good, bad laws dehumanize people. Good laws humanize people. So just the juxtaposition between these ideas. Um, so here's what I'm going to do with this recording in the next period. I just literally cannot believe that we didn't get through everything. But in the next period, I'm going to rush through the beginnings of the slides so we can get through the rest, and then I'll record that. You can listen to the discussion of the further slides down further in case, because we're going to... You guys are going to miss it. And I'm so sorry. <laughs> but you can go and uh, read through the slides yourself and fill out the rest of your packet here and have it ready. The good thing about it is you have time. It's not until next, not this coming Monday, but next Monday that we are going to write about it. So you have time to, to kind of solidify your ideas about this. But we'll go until we have a couple more minutes. Macy, where you go? References to peace um, were there was like two main ones. Um, I've almost reached a regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is which is the presence of justice. Isn't that the most incredible distinction? It's so beautiful. So talk about negative peace versus positive peace. So like with negative peace, he's kind of saying that it's basically there's no tension, but like things aren't just. But like positive peace is like that there is justice and that things are equal. And that's how like he goes on like this whole thing about like tension and how it's required in order to get justice because without tension, there's no awareness of a problem. Mm -hmm. So, like, the negative piece is basically saying, like, we don't want any tension, so, like, we're just going to kind of, like, ignore all the problems. Um, 
And then he talks about how their actions are peaceful, even though they precipitate violence. So, and he talks about this a lot with nonviolence as well. Um, but he's basically saying that we're being peaceful and we're being nonviolent, even though a violence comes out of yeah. it and the other side isn't. Yeah. So. Lovely. Thank you. Yep. You guys, I genuinely don't understand how we didn't get through it. I don't understand it. So I'm going to pause this. So, picking up with the idea of peace, hope, and nonviolence, Macy was saying he talks a lot about peace, and he talks about those two different types of peace, right? He talks a lot about the difference between a positive peace and a negative peace. And that's an incredibly beautiful way to structure an essay if you wanted to, right? The difference between those two types of peace. The negative peace is just the absence of tension and the absence of change. And the positive peace is allowing that tension so change can happen, right? And then we have the idea of hope. Things can get better. If that target audience, the white moderate, the white religious God-fearing moderate will change their stance, then we can have hope. And goodness gracious, I hope I don't have to point out the times he mentions nonviolence. <laughs> it's all pretty clear, right? But the opposite side of that coin is the prejudice, racism, and stereotypes. So we have, he's, he's using anecdotes to illustrate the prejudice that people are experiencing. He's using anecdotes to talk about the racism. He's using anecdotes to talk about, um, not, not anecdotes, but religious appeals saying that we're all brothers and sisters in the eyes of God. So when we're talking about racism, he's using all the stuff, ethos, pathos, logos, Lots and lots. And then stereotypes, similar to racism, but stereotypes, that the, the difference between a stereotype, you're making an assumption about a group of people, right? And racism and prejudice are acting on those assumptions. So stereotype is the thought process. Prejudice is the action based on that thought process. Are you doing okay, Katie? I just didn't know. Okay. Um, we have similes, metaphors, and symbols. We know that Martin Luther King is a master of these things. Um, the Bible, tons of, even if it's not a, a, a simile, or a con it's, it's a connection to the Bible, it's an analogy to the Bible, a reference to the Bible, an allusion to the Bible. It's all the same thing, and you could get away with using all of those terms, and you would be fine, right? Um, he uses a lot of dark clouds like a lot of imagery of the dark cloud of racism, the dark cloud of ignorance, the dark cloud of complacency, and juxtaposing that with the idea of light and the light and hope of that positive tension, right? And then again, Socrates, like those credibility appeals are also symbols. Socrates is the symbol of academic understanding. Lincoln is the political symbol and historical symbol of righteous leadership right and then we have obviously jesus and god as the ultimate symbol of religious uh obligation right and then we have historically we have hitler as the ultimate symbol of what not to do right again these are the big fat trump cards um 
just lots and lots of beautiful language and imagery to illustrate his points. And then, are you ready to take this, Lauren? Yeah. So basically what I kind of, I picked the, like, my, kind of my favorite, um, compare and contrast. Um, and what I meant by like live in monologue rather than dialogue for too long, they've kind of kept quiet and in the dark and they were always just, you know, kept quiet. Um, and it's only now that they're finally had enough that they're finally gonna use their words in these peaceful protests to finally vocalize their grievances that they've dealt with for so long. And then harried by day and haunted by night, I really wanted to contrast day and night. Um, so they're harassed during the day from the white moderates and just everyone. And what I meant like haunted by night is it's not people harassing them, instead it's themselves doing it, thinking yeah. that they're in the wrong for being the color that they are. So one thing that I think is beautiful about his juxtaposition, his use of compare and contrast and putting two opposing ideas next to each other, is his parallel structure. So do you remember that being a term on your rhetorical analysis paper, right? Parallel structure is super important. The way that he's setting off these juxtaposed ideas is through a writing technique called parallel structure. So if he said, if people were like running around by day and then just kind of like upset about stuff by night, would it have the same impact? I'm hoping you're saying no. <laughs> So the harried by day and haunted by night, he's using alliteration of those two H words to create a parallel in the first part of the sentence and the end part of the sentence. And there's more impact when he structures the sentence syntactically like that. So he's using like six different literary devices in just one line to illustrate the juxtaposition between these two ideas. So he's a real master, and he in, I, in the I Have a Dream speech, he does the same thing over and over again, juxtaposing this idea with this idea and making it beautifully written using parallel structure. So those are all things that you could talk about. And then the last one, society must protect the robbed and punish the robber. Again, protect the robbed, part one, punish the robber, part two. If he said, protect the rob and the robbers should be punished. It just takes the structural parallelism out of the sentence. But the way he structures it and chunks it with mirror-like juxtapositions is a beautiful thing, but it helps our brains understand the contrast between the two ideas. Yeah? Okay. Um, so what I kind of wanted to say was comparing like the robber or like the white moderates who have basically taken away these civil rights for the African-Americans who do have the right to these because it was an amendment at some point, but yet they're still being punished um, for something they've never done just because they're a different color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's problematic. Um, all right, Haley, you ready? Okay. Um, so in um, this letter, there's a ton of like allusions and anecdotes, and so this one's just, this slide has the examples and then the analysis on the next slide. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, one of the, like, ones we see for illusions is, um, when you finally, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering. Um, and so later on the next slide that, um, there's like a billion allusions to the Bible, like a billion in this whole speech. And I just decided to pick that one because there's too many to put on mm -hmm. this PowerPoint. 
Um, but that was one of the ones that I think. But you could write your whole essay mm -hmm. on just the biblical allusions, right? I think that one was one of the easiest ones to like understand for people who like aren't religious because like you know there's constantly the talk of like being struck dumb like in a lot of religious texts, and so I think that that one's like super easy to understand and is a super good parallel to the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, the next one. Um, that I actually like don't think a lot of people caught was um, uh, all too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the um, security of stained glass windows right and so um, like when I was looking at it I realized like it's um, as it goes on it actually like kind of alludes to the hunchback of Notre Dame mm -hmm. um, in that he's hiding within this church and like hiding behind like these glass windows, which is like a big symbol within the hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's a major illusion that's shown. Well, and the, the reason for this illusion is to say mm -hmm. you're hiding behind the, the stained glass windows are a symbol of religion, yeah. like symbol of Christianity. Right. And so he's saying you're hiding behind your religion as a reason to not follow mm -hmm your religion yeah and the stained glass windows are also almost like a superficial representation of their beliefs yeah. so he's saying you're hiding behind the superficial representation of your belief rather than your actual belief mm -hmm. that's a really good one yeah and then um the talks about like abraham lincoln and thomas jefferson like later like alludes to that historical perspective and like going back in history like during like you know when slavery was an active part of america and something that we had to deal with um, and then anecdotes, so um, there's a few stories, but um, there's one that's like pretty much she's talking about where like leaders like sought to negotiate with the city people, but essentially um, they refused to, to even talk to them and like have good words with them. And so that's um, an anecdote there. And then um, there's the Socrates anecdote where he essentially just is like comparing people of color and himself to Socrates, like very subtly, but it's there. Uh -huh. Um, and then they, the people murdered Socrates. Yeah, and yeah, he was he's kind of like, so, yeah. A, yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> little did he know, just um, you know, that he would be in that situation. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, but yeah, so that's one. And then um, the last one, he tells the source, like the this one's uh, very pathos. This one, um, and it's like. Um, tells the story of like a small girl like wanting to go to an amusement park and like why they can't just because of the color of their skin which like you know causes that want so yes hey good job you guys I will share this episode out once I edit it and so every, you'll, you can just listen to it again as we move forward but as you're leaving I'll record the part of this last slide that we have here so Maisie discussed here the, the diction and sound device choices in Martin Luther King's work. And he is such a speech maker that the sound devices that he uses are, are poetic in nature. Like he's very good at illusion. He's really good at making his words sound a certain way to elicit a certain effect in his audience. Like help them believe him, understand better, or have a... Like a, a visceral response to his words, so the reposite, the the idea of uh, diction and his word choice. Martin Luther King is very aware of the connotation of his word choices. So injustice and unjust. He He's always connecting. Bye, Katie. Always connecting word choices with uh, information that his audience would relate to. So he uses a lot of biblical words in a secular way. Um, that's also a lot of the choices that he's making. So you really could write a whole essay on why Martin Luther King is choosing the specific words that he is understanding the emotionally charged nature of those words. Sorry, I'm recording this just one sec. 
Oh my gosh. I want to see that. And just, I'm just finishing recording this. Um, and the sound devices in terms of, um, he uses a lot of alliteration. He uses a lot of parallel structure in his sentences to make, not only make his words impactful, but to make them sound beautiful and well-constructed is another part of his style that also appeals to his credibility as a speaker and an author. Because not only is he sharing his ideas, he's sharing his ideas in a complex and artful way, which is a whole other level and a whole other level of respect in terms of commanding respect and authority from his audience. So anyway, we have quite a bit of uh, stuff to analyze here. Thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, Martin Luther King. Turns out he's a genius, in case you didn't already know. Okay, bye.